Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Altruism. The world of nature points to the way of grace. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, April 29th, 2012. Last summer, my wife and I celebrated our 30th wedding anniversary by walking 200 miles coast to coast across northern England. We followed the so-called Wainwright Walk, rated by many guidebooks as one of the best walks in the world. Our first day began in howling wind and rain on the cliffs of St. Bees on the Irish Sea. Sixteen days later, we arrived at Robin Hood's Bay. We dipped our boots into the North Sea, tossed our pebble into the water, then signed the official finisher's registry at the Wainwright Bar in the Bay Hotel. We love so many things about our hike. The route passes through three national parks, the Lake District, the Yorkshire Dales, and the North York Moors, each gorgeous in its own way. We experienced the wettest part of England. Cleverly named Sprinkling Tarn averages 185 inches of rain a year. Historical sites like the Richmond Castle founded in 1071 and the Shap Abbey founded in 1199 dotted our path. We also learned some fun, Brit fun Britishisms like get a wiggle on, which means to hurry up. The evening pub life made us wish for something similar in America. One surprise were the thousands of sheep. There wasn't a single day that we didn't see hundreds of sheep. Road signs with lamb silhouettes urged cars to slow down. Another sign warned dog owners about sheep worrying. And I'll always remember hiking into Patterdale late one afternoon. As we passed through yet another sheep pasture, a farmer encouraged us to stick around to see some action. A few minutes later, he unleashed three border collies that herded the sheep across a stone bridge and into a different pasture. Watching those dogs work gave me goosebumps. <clears throat> three of the four readings this week compare our relationship with God to that of a shepherd and his sheep. David's famous Psalm 23 exudes confidence in God's care, despite the shadow of death, the specter of evil, and threats from his enemies. I shall lack nothing, he says, for you are with me. God sees and cares. He knows what we need. And in John chapter 10, in one of his seven I am statements in which Jesus echoes God's divine name revealed to Moses, Jesus depicts himself in the same way that David describes God in Psalm 23. I am the good shepherd, he says. Jesus deepens God's promises of comfort, care, and protection. He emphasizes divine love expressed in self-sacrifice. A good shepherd is far better than a hired hand. The hireling doesn't own the sheep, doesn't really care about the sheep, and runs off at the first whiff of danger. 
He only wants a paycheck. The owner of the sheep is different. He'll do anything to save his sheep. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep, says Jesus about himself. This depiction of self-sacrifice recurs five times in this week's Gospel, and then a sixth time in the Epistle of John, 1 John chapter 3, where we read, Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. John's epistle then draws the obvious corollary, and we ought to lay down our lives for one another. In his own self-sacrifice for all the world, Jesus gave us an example. Confession of faith in Jesus leads to imitation of the life of Jesus. How can we claim genuine faith without authenticating action, asked John. Words lead to deeds. He writes, this is his command, to believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. Religious faith is often self-referential. John's command about the human imitation of divine self-sacrifice is a needed reminder he mentions sharing material possessions with those in need, but that's only one of many applications of a broader principle that's rich with implications. But is self-sacrifice and altruism a way to live in the world? In a strictly evolutionary scheme of the survival of the fittest, conflict and competition are not only natural, but good and necessary. Animals pass on their genes thanks to selfishness, not generosity. Darwin admitted that altruism was a potentially fatal challenge to his theory of natural selection. <coughs> Self-sacrificial behavior <coughs> excuse me. Self-sacrificial behavior that places the needs of others ahead of your own needs looks like a recipe for extinction. And thus the title of Richard Dawkins' famous book, The Selfish Gene. Nonetheless, nature presents us with a paradox. Altruism is everywhere, a stubborn anomaly of nature. Several examples come to mind of this well-known phenomenon. Vampire bats aren't just bloody predators. They actually survive by sharing food with the entire colony. Honeybees are famous for their division of labor for the greater good. Birds raise offspring that don't belong to them. E.O. Wilson of Harvard argues that ants are one of the most successful forms of life precisely because of their shared sacrifice and cooperation. Similarly, the evolutionary biologist Joan Roughgarden of Stanford believes that Darwin was wrong about universal sex roles in which aggressive males seek passive females in a competition of perpetual conflict. She argues that cooperation and interdependence are as important in nature as conflict.
So altruism in nature is a simple fact, but exactly why it exists is hotly debated. E.O. Wilson adopts an argument made by Darwin himself. Although selfishness within a group might be advantageous, and altruism is deleterious for a single individual, generosity and self-sacrifice are advantageous for group survival. Wilson writes, altruistic groups beat selfish groups. So in this instance, nature points to grace. Jesus gave himself up for us all, a single individual for all the world, and he asks us to do the same. For books this week, I review John Polkinghorne, the title, Science and Religion in Quest of Truth. New Haven, Yale University Press, 2011, 143 pages. You could make a good argument that John Polkinghorne, born in 1930, is the leading light in the study of the relationship between science and religion. From 1968 to 1979, he was professor of mathematical physics at Cambridge University and wrote five books. He then left physics to study for the Anglican priesthood and was ordained in 1982. After five years of ministry, he then served as president of Queen's College, Cambridge, from 1988 until his retirement in 1996. His many honors and awards include Knighthood, the Templeton Prize, and the Gifford Lectures. Polkinghorne has written 26 books on the relationship between science and religion. Science and Religion in Quest of Truth represents his mature thought after a lifetime of thinking about the subject. He doesn't break any new ground here but instead offers a 100-page synopsis and synthesis of what he considers to be the main themes of the discipline. It's an excellent overview and introduction to the subject. Polkinghorne argues for the unity of all knowledge. For him, science and religion are what he calls colleagues in a common quest for truth. In the fourfold taxonomy of Ian Barber, he favors dialogue between the two disciplines rather than conflict, independence, or integration. Science has succeeded precisely because of its narrow purview and the modesty of its ambition. Science is not the only way to know or the only thing worth knowing. Matters of meaning, value, and beauty, for example, lie outside its scope. All scientific facts are interpreted facts. They rely on a circular interplay between theory and experiment, and are based upon prior assumptions, such as the rational intelligibility of reality. The heart of the book reviews the main contributions of each discipline to the other. Chapter 3 considers six gifts of science to theology. Causality, 
relationality, cosmology, evolution, time, and consciousness. Chapter 4 then considers theology's contributions to science. Natural theology, creation, evolution, the problem of evil, providence, prayer, miracles, eschatology, revelation, and scripture. Both disciplines aim for what he calls well-motivated belief. That is, not irrefutable proofs, but the most economic, coherent, adequately comprehensive, and intellectually satisfying understanding of the rich range of human experience of reality. Even though this is an introductory text, I still found the science material difficult. What Polkinghorn gains in breadth, he also sacrifices in depth. But he's unfailingly fair-minded, well-informed, modest in tone, confident in ironic. On any given subject, he explains the level of clarity, controversy, debate, and speculation involved. Polkinghorne is also an excellent writer. This volume is a wonderful resource to begin the study of one of the most important subjects of our time. Once again, John Polkinghorne, Science and Religion in Quest of Truth. For film this week, I review with a movie called A Better Life from 2011. Carlos's fondest dream is to give his son Louis a better life in East Los Angeles. You don't want to grow up to be like me, he tells Louis. But that's easier said than done. Carlos is a single dad, an illegal immigrant, and doesn't even have a driver's license. He works from dawn to dusk in a mow-and-blow gardener crew rents a cottage that's peeling paint, and collapses onto the sofa bed each night after a grueling day of physical labor. His strategy, he says, is, quote, to remain invisible, end quote. The teenager, Lewis, thinks his dad is a loser. He's cavalier about missing school, and he's flirting with gangs. Carlos then buys his friend's truck with borrowed money, including the equipment and the list of clients. It's his chance at the American dream, but it's also risky. The truck gets stolen, and you know this story can't end well for anyone. Director Chris Weitz makes the film work at several levels. It's a tender father-son drama, a sympathetic snapshot of life as an undocumented worker, Perhaps a political statement, although in the press they've denied that. And finally, as a cultural tour of East Los Angeles that looks, sounds, and feels utterly foreign to what most of us think is America. A Better Life has won numerous awards and nominations. And finally, for late April, for poetry, we've posted the poem, The Daffodils, by William Wordsworth, 1770 to 
1850. I'm sure you'll find the words very familiar. I wandered lonely as a cloud that floats on hill or veils in hills, when all at once I saw a crowd, a host of golden daffodils, beside the lake, beneath the trees, fluttering and dancing in the breeze. Continuous as the stars that shine and twinkle on the Milky Way, they stretched in never-ending line along the margin of a bay. Ten thousand saw I at a glance, tossing their heads in sprightly dance. The waves beside them danced, but they outdid the sparkling waves in glee. A poet could not be but gay in such a jocund company. I gazed and gazed but little thought what wealth the show to me had brought. For oft when on my couch I lie in vacant or in pensive mood, they flash upon that inward eye which is the bliss of solitude. And then my heart with pleasure fills and dances with the daffodils. William Wordsworth, The Daffodils. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, April 29th, 2012. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.